Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Camilla Haynes from Emory University on this show. Please let me brief you, briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you did your graduate work in the lab of Sarah Elgin at Washington University in St. Louis and received your PhD in 2006. You then went on to do a postdoc at Howard Hughes Medical Institute and a second one at Harvard Medical School. Then in 2011, you started your own lab at the School of Biological and Health Systems Engineering at Arizona State University. And then in 2018, you moved to the WH Culture Biomedical Engineering Department at Georgia Tech Emory University. And you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Wow, so that's a, that's a great question to start with. Um, I think, uh, so I, I first made up my mind to pursue a career in science uh, when I was, I guess, I guess that, that started as early as high school. So uh, in high school, I really enjoyed math, right? And I liked, I liked solving puzzles. I, I got into solving crossword puzzles when I was in the fourth or fifth grade, like back in uh, um, elementary school. And I just loved activities where I could sit and concentrate and sort of, you know, find patterns and, and really think about how things worked. So I think that kind of, you know, um, There was a natural affinity to, to science there. So then uh, in um, high school, right, in the U.S., that, you know, grades um, um, 9 through 12, right, uh, I think it was my, uh, about my second or third year in high school, our, we had a, an excellent, a really talented uh, and creative biology teacher, And she actually had a friend who worked in the local biotech company. So this is in St. Louis, Missouri. So the local biotech company then was Monsanto, right? So a lot of people are probably familiar with Monsanto. So her, she had a, a friend who worked there and they put together this fabulous molecular biology uh, sort of hands-on exercise. So I got to run a DNA electrophoresis gel And I, and I was, I was sold, right? And I had started learning about Punnett squares and, you know, that there was like a pad, there were patterns in logic associated with biology. So I wasn't super excited about biology before that time. Uh, but once I started learning about genetics, I got really excited about it, right? There, there are patterns and there are, you know, these sort of uh, somewhat predictable things that you could observe, right, that that help to explain what, what makes us how we are and, you know, in, in the, you know, non-human animals and plants. And I just got really excited about that. So around that time also, uh, the movie, the first Jurassic Park was released. <laughs> so, you know, the idea of genetic engineering, you know, was, you know, definitely becoming more and more mainstream. And there were some, some, technically correct elements, even though there are some very famous, uh, you know, not correct things in that movie. But, you know, they were, they were showing the, the DNA double helix and, you know, they had a lot of the basic things right. And I just, I got so excited to see that. And then it was almost like, 
you know, a, a signal, uh, you know, um, sort of confirming that, you know, my excitement about the field uh, what would was uh, would guide me to a, a really exciting career. Yeah. So then uh, when I um, finally uh, went on to college, immediately I declared biology as a major. I wasn't really interested in becoming a medical doctor. I knew that someday I wanted to launch my own research lab. So yeah, and then the, the rest is history. Yeah, coming to your science that centers around thin, synthetic chromatin epigenetics, um, I want to start in the year 2011. Uh, there you were first author of a paper titled Synthetic Reversal of Epigenetic Silencing. And looking back to this paper now, it seems that this was like the starting point of, your, of the research you're doing now. So what was the idea behind this paper and what were the results? Yeah, so that you're, you're correct. That's um, that was my first um, publication where I explored the interface of rational design or engineering and biology, specific chromat specifically chromatin mediated epigenetics. So yeah, so that idea actually originated during my uh, teaching research uh, postdoctoral fellowship at Davidson College. So earlier in the intro, you mentioned that I was a HHMI fellow or Howard Hughes Medical Institute fellow. I was actually uh, physically located at Davidson College for that fellowship. And that's where I had uh, sort of, uh, sort of uh, departed from the field of chromatin mediated epigenetics for a minute to learn something new. And so at Davidson College, I learned about, I started learning about synthetic biology. So uh, by the time I got to my second uh, postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard, uh, I really started thinking about, you know, what had been done in synthetic biology so far. And, around, and at that time, there wasn't a lot of work that had been published, uh, sort of integrating uh, principles from uh, engineering, right, control theory and rational design into uh, chromatin-mediated epigenetics or eukaryotic systems in general for that matter. So then um, I, I leveraged uh, a lot of the, um, uh, what I had learned during my PhD about epigenetic regulation and uh, you know, uh, chromatin that mediates silencing, right? So Sally Elgin, you know, she's uh, uh, best known for her discovery of the HP1 uh, chromatin silencing protein. So I had started learning about some of the other uh, proteins that uh, you know, contribute to a similar mechanism. Uh, so I shifted my focus to polycomb, right, which is a set of proteins that are best known for stabilizing epigenetic silencing at genes. And uh, because they had been so well studied around that time, so this is between um, 2008 and 2011, Uh, there were a whole series of papers that were being published showing that uh, chromatin proteins are often overexpressed in cancer. And then so there was um, a lot of excitement building up around this idea of epigenetic misregulation in cancer. And the reason why that's exciting is that that, that system is, is, is regarded as, as plastic or flexible, right? So if, you know, if the One of the underlying problems with cancer is that there is an epigenetic state. It's shifting to an, the cells are shifting to an epigenetic state that promotes cancer. It is possible to shift them in the opposite direction, right? So that 
sort of implicates epigenetic regulation as a drug target. Okay, so back to the paper. So then my, um, I guess sort of my, the, the idea that I had that really drove that paper was just, um, what I wanted to do was try to establish to what extent we could actually use rational design to engineer chromatin behavior. So I immediately focused on the regulators, right? So chromatin biologists call these reader effectors. Um, so then I basically attempted to build one, right? That would couple a silencing signal, a silencing associated signal. Uh, in that case, it was a histone H3 trimethylated lysine 27 with an activation output instead of a silencing output. So just a very sort of basic goal rewire a very well-known epigenetic mark that is uh that it tended to um that was found at higher levels in cancer cells than in normal cells basically take that mark and then sort of uh override its uh its uh impact on gene regulation you're just a polycom to do that yes right so i leveraged um a component from the polycomb system to do that. So uh, what I did uh, specifically was uh, isolate the, the domain. And it's, this is a very well-characterized protein domain that interacts specifically with H3K27 trimethyl, the polycomb chromodomain. So chromodomains you know, are, are near and dear because um, if anyone's familiar with the HP1 protein, right, which was the first a very well-characterized uh, protein outside of histones, right, that uh, organizes chromosomes in the nucleus. That was uh, one of Sally Elgin's discoveries. The, the H HP1 protein has a chromodomain, right, that interacts with a different mark on histone H3. So, so my work um, was actually directly inspired by that because around that time uh, that, that uh, you know, uh, Sally and other scientists had, um, had uh, started learning more about the HP1 protein, other proteins that had similar, um, uh, a sort of a peptide uh, motifs were uh, being uh, investigated. So one of those other proteins was polycomb from Drosophila. So uh, a couple of groups had uh, done this really neat sort of, um, I mean, the purpose wasn't synthetic biology, but it was definitely an application of genetic engineering where they isolated the chromodomain out of HP1. And they also had isolated one out of the, the polycomb protein and then fused them to different proteins to see if the, the polycomb chromodomain itself as a, as a module, so to speak, was sufficient to then sort of uh, target the, the entire fusion protein to specific regions um, in the epigenome that uh, were enriched for their, um, uh, the, uh, the histone modification that, they're, they're, that they recognize naturally. Yeah. So my, my work, um, the, the work that I published out of Pam Silver's lab at Harvard Uh, sort of uh, took that idea uh, as a foundation, but rather than just have the um, the histone binding mark, or sorry, the histone binding domain be um, used to, you know, uh, I guess uh, recruit, you know, a marker or a reporter to specific regions in the in the genome. 
uh, what I built was a gene regulator, right? So then it was essentially a synthetic uh, reader effector meant to alter the expression of genes once the fusion protein was recruited there. So it will recruit to a histone mark and then it will, so it will go to the histone mark and then it will recruit other factors to silence the regions? Yeah. Yeah, so the natural protein, uh, for instance, um, uh, is thought to, and there, there's a lot of very strong evidence to support uh, that this was what the mechanism is. So uh, for instance, uh, one very well-characterized um, polycomb family protein in human cells is a uh, CBX or the, the family of CBX proteins. So at the end terminus, they contain a uh, roughly 60 amino acid region uh, that folds and has an aromatic pocket that interacts with a specific modification of histone 3, histone 3, lysine 27, trimethyl. So then the, uh, the rest of the protein, uh, so once the entire protein is recruited to the site of histone modification, the, uh, the remainder, the rest of the, the, the towards the C-terminal end, uh, sort of um, it interacts with other members of the, uh, the multi-protein complex that assembles to uh, repress or downregulate gene expression at the target. The, so the fusion that I built uh, is very similar to CBX in terms of the, uh, the first step, right, the recognition step but it doesn't share the same C-terminal region. I had, when I built the protein, I had removed that and then added a very strong activator. The activator that I used in that paper was P64. And this is a favorite activation domain for synthetic biologists around that time. You'll see a lot of synthetic biology papers that use VP64 attached to DNA binding uh, protein domains, right? So that VP64 activator had been used a lot to do targeted activation of endogenous genes and uh, mammalian cells. And uh, what uh, was really different about my work was that my targeting mechanism wasn't DNA based, right? I wasn't aiming to read a specific sequence of DNA and then only regulate that one target gene. My regulator instead recognized sites um, through a, a chromatin um, modification, H3K27 trimethyl. So then as a result, you get, uh, so what I observed was that I could drive co-upregulation of the set of genes where, well, at least most of them were enriched for H3K27 trimethyl. So you not only um, yeah, uh, focused on like transcription factors, but also in 2017, you looked at the impact of chromatin dynamics on cas9 mediated genome editing right so mm -hmm. what did you what did you find there yeah so i mean that that was that was kind of a a fun um <laughs> almost sort of a, a side project right because um my the the synthetic reader effector had always been my primary interest but as a uh, crispr started becoming more popular and i learned more about it i started you know just really thinking about these broader questions, right? And especially, well, so going to research conferences, I would I started becoming interested in CRISPR because I wanted to engineer cell lines that had reporters that would help me to better understand the behavior of our you know, chromatin reader effector. 
So then I would ask around about, you know, what, what were people's, you know, experiences with CRISPR, you know, what's the success rate? And then anecdotally, I, I would hear a lot that, you know, basically never, never made it into the papers, right? So you see in, in, uh, in the literature, there are a lot of success stories, but uh, you go to conferences and you actually start talking to people and there were, you, you get a better sense of, you know, how challenging, um, CRISPR mediated editing can be. So nowadays it's gotten a lot better. But then I started wondering, I said, well, you know, given that CRISPR evolved in bacteria and has basically, you know, as far as we know, you know, sort of uh, histone like proteins aside, has certainly not encountered over the course of evolutionary history eukaryotic chromatin, right? So what is something like, you know, a Cas9 protein going to do if it's like, you know, swimming around in this, in this sea of, you know, nucleosomes and, and non-histone proteins packaging the DNA? That's quite the obstacle course, right, for, for a Cas9 protein. So then uh, I kind of, I took the idea back to my lab. And um, so uh, one of the, the lead authors on uh, one of those uh, CRISPR papers, actually the first one, right? So our first publication on that topic. Uh, so I asked my student Renee, so we had a conversation about this and I said, okay, well, let's, let's think of a way to do a controlled experiment where we can ask if, you know, DNA sequence A in an open state is more uh, accessible to the, uh, the Cas protein, the Cas9 protein, than the same DNA, right? The same sequence packed into a, a closed chromatin state. So the, the closest thing that had been done to, to that, you know, or the, the closest thing to that idea experimentally at the time were um, projects where scientists had compared CRISPR mediated, or sorry, yeah, CRISPR editing at uh, known you known um, euchromatic regions versus heterochromatic regions. So one of the one of the tricky things about doing the experiment that way is that you're you don't have the same sequence. Yeah, it's not the same sequence, right? So you're looking at different sequences. So if there's any sort of different, well, so you could design it to where your your guide RNAs have very similar you know, binding right at the two different sites, the two different sequences, but you're not looking at the same sequence, right? So um, what we were able to do was, uh, so we use a really handy engineered cell line that was developed by Klaus Hansen. Um, these are HEC 293 cells that have a, uh, a nice engineered doxycycline inducible chromatin condensation um, uh, uh, mechanism. So the target gene that's either open or tightly packaged in chromatin is luciferase, right? Very easy to measure, a very popular reporter gene. So there, there was an engineered uh, site uh, uh, DNA sequence just upstream of the promoter that act as a that acted as a docking site for uh, a doxycycline inducible uh, member of the polycone complex. So without any doxycycline, the luciferase gene is happily you know, being expressed at, at basal levels. And then once you add doxycycline to those cells, then that activates the expression of a, of a, a modified fusion polycone protein 
that specifically recognizes the sites upstream of luciferase and then uh, nucleates the, the more condensed um, polycomb uh, associated chromatin. So we then, uh, in those cells where luciferase was either in the open conformation or the closed conformation, we then introduced in a, um, a uh, CRISPR complex that targeted different sites along uh, the luciferase gene. And then we were able to directly compare, okay, open versus closed chromatin. So what we found, we, we, we found, um, I guess, so some of the results were, you know, not surprising. We, we did see some uh, inhibition of CRISPR activity uh, at certain sites along luciferase, but there were sites sort of like in between the sensitive sites that seemed to, you know, not care at all, right? Whether uh, the, the chromatin was open or closed, CRISPR was able to get in there and edit anyway. So that, that kind of suggests, I really wanted to pursue the idea of, you know, some sort of a discontinuity, right? In, in, in uh, chromatin packaging along that gene, but unfortunately, you know, they <laughs> only, the graduate students are only in the lab for so long and we didn't quite have time to, uh, to uh, really explore that, but the, those findings were pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's the same with uh, the transposes and, and the ataxic experiments nowadays. So it's mm. not surprising that there is a difference between heterochromatin and euchromatin. Mm -hmm. So then in a paper from 2017, you came back to your polycomb-based transcription factors and described uh, the genome-wide behavior, behavior of this uh, fusion protein. So what did you find there then? Right. So this is this is where things started getting really interesting, right? And we started, um, I started getting a little bit comfortable asking the hard questions. So the initial work was a lot more basic. Okay, so can you take a, you know, some histone uh, PT or uh, modified histone binding domain and use it to build a gene regulator? So we had, uh, I, when I was a postdoc in Pam Silver's lab, we had done the basic work to answer that question. And then, so then the bigger questions are, okay, well, um, is, do do all of the genes respond right to this artificial regulator? Are certain sites non-responsive? Are the other sites more responsive? Are you activating entire pathways, right? When you're co-regulating all these genes. And then after you do all of that, what's the effect on cell phenotype, right? Is this even uh, useful, right? Is it practical? And can you get consistent responses that you know, sort of track with the overall uh, epigenetic landscape of the of the cell that you're um, expressing the the synthetic reader effector in. So um, the is the yeah the first paper where we explored a genome wide response to synthetic reader effectors was published in um, uh, Nature Genomic Medicine and. Uh, so then what we found, so I had, because we had started collecting uh, more genome-wide data that, that allowed us to answer uh, some, um, you know, so it's answer some broader questions, right, about the function of the reader effector. And so I guess one of the results that I found to be really striking was that we did, we started doing some chip, right, some chromatin immunoprecipitation experiments to map the localization of the reader effector at higher resolution. And then so um, 
we were comparing the distribution of the reader effector to the mark that it was designed to recognize. So one of the results, it, it, it scared the heck out of me when I first saw it, right? So uh, we what we saw was that, so it was around, um, yeah, it was aggregated data, right? On a set of genes that had both the mark and our synthetic reader effector, right? Where the signals were in the same vicinity. So what we expected to see was a beautiful overlap of, of the profile of the reader effector and the mark that it was designed to bind to. Instead, we saw this stark non-overlap, right? So the, the histone modification uh, you know, showed up, it peaked around, I don't know, anywhere from you know, 1,000 base pairs to 500 base pairs upstream of the transcription start site, which is not terribly surprising because what, what's typical for a lot of expressed genes is that when you get right to where, you know, RNA polymerase, you know, starts doing its job, right? The transcription start site, there is a dip, right? There is a, a depletion of histone signal because histone signals don't typically sit right on top of the transcription start site. So that was not surprising. But what we were shocked to see was that our reader effector had this nice, beautiful, clear peak over the transcription factor, right? So the two profiles that we expected to overlap essentially did not, okay? So then I, I got really scared because I thought, oh, well, this reader effector, because it has such a strong activation domain, well, maybe it's not binding the histones at all. Maybe the, the activation domain is interacting with the mediator complex or something. And, you know, this is, um, yeah, this is terrible. I just made, you know, some generic activator. But then when we, what, what, so what saved us was the control experiment. So we did a control experiment where we removed the histone binding domain from the synthetic reader effector, right? So we just had effector, no histone binding domain. So then if my, you know, fear was uh, correct, right? That, the, you know, it was just the activator that was doing most of the work. Then, we should, the, yeah. yeah, we should have seen that, you know, the same peak, right? But when you remove the histone binding domain, that activation peak goes away. Okay. Like it drops to pretty much zero. So then uh, that uh, enabled us to propose a, a model where maybe the, the, the reader effector is touching down on the histone modification, but by the time it starts activating the gene, and, and that, that's when we're doing the chip experiment. Okay the physical interaction of the activation domain with the initiation complex is so strong that we're actually then mapping that sort of downstream interaction. But you absolutely need the histone binding domain to, to start that process. And so we had established that with the control experiment. Yeah. So we learned a lot. <laughs> I know omics can, can show you so much more than, uh, you know, the uh, just doing the more basic experiments. Yeah, you then moved on and also modified this. Um, was this a reason for that, or why was it necessary to modify the, the oh, complex? Right. So, so we were. So the the main reason why we decided to modify the reader effector was that. So we were starting. We were thinking seriously about you know some um, translational you know preclinical experiments, and then so you know knowing what I had, had learned about transfection efficiency. So all of the delivery barriers, right? So you want to, you know, you can, you can develop this really fancy protein, 
but it's essentially a biologic. And not only is it a biologic, but it has to actually get into the cell and into the nucleus, right? So some significant delivery barriers. So there are, that then presents like a whole host of, you know, very fun, you know, challenges to work on. The idea for modifying the protein was to address um, um, efficacy, right? So uh, effective dose, basically. So the, what, what we figured was that, okay, well, if we wind up in a situation where the, the concentration of our synthetic effector in the nucleus is pretty low, if we can modify it so that each individual molecule is more potent, then maybe we can compensate for less than optimal delivery. Okay, so then um, the first question we asked was, okay, well, you know, there, this is essentially a reader effector. Are there any, is this how reader effectors work, right? Can you attach two domains, right? And make it work better. Does increase or does multivalency or increased uh, avidity actually contribute to its activity as a transcriptional activator? So a lot of that, th those questions had uh, um, been answered by some previous work on natural reader effectors. And so we looked to that literature and then sort of came and then did some, some investigation into, okay, well, how are these domains linked together? So we had to do a lot of thought about going back to rational design, right? So sort of applying what we knew from basic research to redesigning this protein. And then so, yeah, so one of the follow-on papers demonstrated that, yes, we could, um, you know, modify our reader effector to have two tandem domains and that uh, we showed it with in vitro experiments on purified protein that that does um, uh, enhance the uh, overall affinity of the protein for the histone modification. Uh, but then the big question is, okay, well, does that actually matter when it comes to regulating a gene, right? And then so indeed we did find that that was the case that when you have this uh, bivalent uh, synthetic reader effector, you get, you know, threefold or higher um, uh, gene activating activity compared to uh, a set of controls that we also tested in that experiment. Was that then the necessary step to move on to breast cancer cells, mm. basically? Hey, I think that the, the biggest challenge there is going to be delivery. And then even uh, we, we did, even though we got some really nice results, um, with the, uh, the tandem binding domains, we're trying to push it even further and um, engineer a single domain that has increased affinity for H3K27 trimethyl. And we're doing that work right now. It's uh, funded by the NIH with a, uh, through an R21 grant. So we're really excited about that. And we're hoping to publish something this year, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> so, um, but then in addition to that, so we're really excited to move. Oh, so we've also, you know, Basically, so I call it cheating, right? Where you just take the, you know, your transgenic DNA and then you overexpress in cells. That's ultimately, we, we don't plan on relying on that as a drug delivery mechanism. DNA transfection in tissues is notoriously hard. And I, I don't, I'm not very optimistic that it's going to get, you know, much better um, in the near term. So we are exploring some alternatives like protein delivery, right? There are very compact cell penetrating peptide tags that we actually did this, this, this uh, piece is published in bioarchive 
where we added, uh, I think it was a 10 amino acid signal to the C-terminus of the protein. You purify those proteins, um, suspend them in, in PBS, add that directly to cell culture. And about 12 hours later, you can see clear, visible uptake of the protein into the cells. Now, how much of that actually makes it into the nucleus? We still have to, <laughs> I think that's that's the troubleshooting, right? But um, there's very strong and very, um, you know, uh, homogenous uptake of the, the protein from the surrounding culture media. So we thought that was really exciting. But then we're also trying to explore other, uh, you know, sort of a molecular cargo like RNA, right? So RNA is pretty big nowadays because of, you know, COVID vaccine, right? Um, and now, now, you know, for the most part, we're all comfortable with the idea of transfect, essentially transfecting people with <laughs> <laughs> synthetic RNA. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, that's going to provide a, a really powerful boost to um, sort of engineered uh, molecular medicine. So we're thinking about now RNA has uh, some um, very unique uh, advantages. You can program RNAs to be specifically expressed in a target cell based on um, the um, uh, uh, ribosome binding site bias, right? So there, there exists this sort of a preference for what types of um, uh, ribosome binding sites um, boost translation. And that, that, that tends to be a little cell type dependent. So you can sort of bias your messenger RNA to be more strongly expressed in one cell type versus the other. And you can also leverage the microRNA profile of the target cell. And so this, this uh, idea that we're exploring in the lab now was inspired by some work that had already been done in synthetic biology, right? So essentially um, tagging your genetic system so that it will be very, um, it will be a very aggressively silenced by the uh, RNAi machinery in one cell type that has, you know, a, a higher concentration of a certain type of microRNA versus another cell type where that microRNA might be expressed at lower levels. So then you wind up biasing the expression of your messenger RNA in one cell type versus the, or in your target cell type versus the non-target cell. So that's going to be really important because these, uh, the regulators that we're working on, um, as I described earlier, are uh, designed to target a whole cohort of genes. And then so we would, that, that, that's a little bit concerning, right? If you, if that protein winds up in a non-target cell in a healthy cell, that is also right busy regulating its genes with you know the same set of chromatin marks, albeit you know maybe distributed in a different way. We don't want to induce any um, unwanted you know re-regulation in in a cell that we're we're not trying to target yeah. with with a chromatin based therapy. So you just gave us a glimpse uh, of what you're working on right now and what will be the future. Is is that what you just um, outlined what you're working on right now and what your plans for the next, like, let's say, five years are? Oh, yes. Yes. So that is, um, yeah, so those are just some technical highlights of what we've been busy with uh, over the past couple of years. So I've been at Emory for, since uh, 2019. And so um, thanks to very generous support from my department, I was able to get launched pretty quickly. Although there, there was a um, 
yeah, delay because of COVID. We weren't, our research is not directly related to COVID. So in order yeah. to support or in order to, you know, adhere to uh, social distancing policies, we, we had to halt all of the work in our lab for about three months. So we are now sort of transitioning back um, to occupancy and we were able to uh, get our, our work booted up again. Uh, but, oh, another thing that I didn't mention about our current work is that we're now uh, focusing on triple negative breast cancer. Uh, and then so, yeah, basically the, the primary motivation of that is that that particular type of cancer has very few options um, for effective treatment. A lot of triple negative breast cancer patients uh, first, they've got to endure, you know, the chemotherapy, which is notoriously, um, you know, rough, right? It's painful and it's a burden on the patient. But then, um, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, five to 10 years later, uh, the, the tumors reappear. And then what makes it even worse is that those are non-responsive even to chemotherapy, so it's a really challenging disease. There are, you know, some, some options for the, the non-triple negative, right? So the breast cancers that express um, at least one of the hormone responsive receptors, um, patients that have that, those types, right? The luminal A, B, right? The other types of breast cancer have hormone therapy as an option. So they don't have to go immediately to chemotherapy, but for triple negative and then some other, you know, harder to treat subtypes. Um, there really needs to be, I think, uh, some more out of the box thinking in terms of drug development is, is, is very much needed to um, get some um, possibly more effective options available to patients. Yeah. And I think that, you know, synthetic biology, of course, you know, definitely is very good at um, approaching problems from angles that are typically, you know, not um, explored with, with the more traditional approaches. So during my research for this interview, I went to your lab website and below the tab blog, one could find many tabs like equity and inclusion and outreach. So what is your general approach to science and what is your motivation behind those topics that are maybe not strictly scientific? Oh, wow. Ooh, so that's a, that's a big <laughs> question. Well, I'll first say that, um, yeah, so being from, right, a uh, underrepresented and marginalized group, I mean, I, I for the sake of time, I, I can't really go into detail about my own experiences, um, but um, one type of experience that I think can really, really summarizes how, you know, folks who, you know, have the same identi identity as me tend to be absent, right, from these spaces is um, just assumptions about, you know, basically being presumed incompetent. And it's very easy for people to do that because you, you'll, if you, if you spend any time on Twitter and you sort of look at the types of arguments people throw out in order to defend their, you know, often wrongheaded ideas about who is doing science and why, Uh, they like to explain, you know, the abundance, right, of, you know, for instance, you know, white men in science by, well, we are naturally better at it. And that conclusion is so wrongheaded. It's, it's there, you know, there are a lot of 
mechanisms of exclusion that they're ignoring. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why that is, is that nobody wants to be a bad guy, right? Everybody wants to think that they're fair and objective. And, oh, you know, if you talk about marginalization and assumptions that people have, yeah, yeah, all of these assumptions that turn out being microaggressions and they they end up discouraging people from getting involved. Um, if you focus on those things and people feel, you know, accused of something and then you wind up with these um, completely non-productive defensive <laughs> arguments and conversations. So then, so I, the things that I do in order to address the problem of very talented, extremely bright um, scientists feeling like, okay, I don't belong here, right? Because, you know, try as you might, you can speak up and be the the smartest person in the room, let's say. And the response to that would, oh, well, you're arrogant or you're, you didn't say that the right way, or I'm not familiar with you, or you didn't publish enough papers, all these things. So that, that type of environment uh, can be, you know, it, it's hostile and, it, and it's a distraction from the science. So, so one of the projects that I worked on is, or that I'm working on now is um, a, uh, an annual conference series called Afrobiotech. And so uh, I wanted to make this a little bit different from uh, a lot of conferences that sort of uh, create a, a more welcome environment for, for marginalized groups. So it basically, Afrobiotech does achieve that, but um, it's also designed to address uh, these issues around lack of visibility. So I also participate on other uh, scientific conference um, uh, planning committees. And when um, you know someone raises the point that, oh, well, there's you know, lack of diversity in this, in this slate of speakers, what I what what the, the the response you often get back is, well, I just don't, I mean, this just is, didn't find it. We can't, yeah, where are they? I don't know any, right? So, and then I can suggest someone, but maybe they're a bit outside of the field and then that just, you know, we end up getting nowhere. So I launched Afrobiotech, right? Which basically um, features or sort of uh, offers the podium to uh, leaders in, you know, people who are doing cutting edge uh, science and research in the broader biotechnology space who are African-American. And then, so then um, I guess sort of the unique feature of Afrobiotech is that I am, um, you know, I, I, while we're planning, I'm very actively encouraging, you know, my broader network to participate, right? Sign up as an attendee, as a, you know, a sponsor, an exhibitor or a recruiter. And I can help you to answer your question of, where, where, right? Where are all the black scientists? Like, okay, we'll come to Afrobiotech and see. And then hopefully over time, now, you know, these folks will be so familiar to you that, you know, maybe we won't need an annual bio, Afrobiotech in the future. And it'll just be more common for the, the speakers and the participants to, you know, for all of the, the talent to, to be truly represented across the different identity groups. Usually I have two more general questions to end this interview, but I think this is a good point to end it. Thank you, Camilla, for your time and for being on the show. All right. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Um, glad to have this opportunity. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.